The reading from the New Testament tonight is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. It's found on page four of your bulletin, Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the son of Zebedee came up with, to him with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Well, my name is Glenn Hoverg. I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And it really is a privilege for me to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Dan Doriani. Um, Dr. Doriani is the Vice President of Strategic Academic Initiatives at Covenant Theological Seminary, where a few of us in this room went. Uh, Dan is also a professor of theology there and uh, taught me most of the New Testament. So if you have benefited from uh, my teaching, don't answer that. If you've benefited from it, uh, much to do is me drawing upon this man's teachings and notes. But I think what especially um, a unique gift that Dan had, he has been a pastor, uh, spent a decade pastoring a church in St. Louis, but even before that, it was his ability to teach the, the Bible in a thoughtful, academic way, but to apply it to the person. And I'll never forget him describing uh, one of the parable scenes of the man being lowered from the roof, rather, the account of that, and uh, the way he described that narrative. I'll never forget it. And it, 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 um, it made me realize the mandate for us to see the scriptures in full color. With all, their, with all its beauty and power. So, Dan, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to invite you on up. I'd love the privilege to pray for you before you preach. Uh, he likes to go wireless, so we have him confined here a little bit. So if he gets stalking up and down the aisles, don't be afraid. He'll be nice to you. Can I pray for you, Dan? Thanks. Such a privilege, Father, to have your word. Thank you for uh, the legacy of faith that you've given to and through Dan. And we pray now for your Holy Spirit and power. We depend on you solely. I know as he does in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Glenn. It's good to be here, see what God is doing in this church. 
in this place, in this city. And it's always good to share God's word with his people. I'm going to speak from Matthew chapter 20, if you'd like to know what's coming. I'm really just going to go through the passage that we studied, uh, that we had read just a few moments ago. Um, Basic idea is probably twofold. We have Jesus telling his people, his disciples, that he's going to suffer and die on the cross. And so that helps us prepare for the events we're going to remember and celebrate the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. In just a couple weeks, uh, all Christians everywhere will be celebrating that. So Jesus predicts that very graphically in the passage that we read just a moment ago. And then his disciples struggle with it, and they don't want to hear about the cross. They want to ask questions like, can I have a position of glory in your kingdom? And we're going to see why they ask that question. So we're going to see two things. Basically, that Jesus uh, offers himself his life as a ransom for many, and he knew he would do that. And then secondly, we're going to see what that says to us, specifically that it calls us to a life of service not identical to his, but echoing his. So let's pray just one more moment if we can. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear all that you're saying to us as a church, as a body of friends, one by one and together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a problem, and the problem is pretty simple. We don't like to suffer, right? We do not like to suffer. We like to have things our way. We are slow to inflict pain on ourselves. We are slow to inflict pain on ourselves, especially if it's for somebody else. I don't mind suffering gives me something. You know, I'll do sit-ups if it makes me stronger, but I'm going to do sit-ups to make you stronger. That wouldn't even make any sense. I don't want to suffer for somebody else. We serve slowly. We serve if we must. We serve if it's mandatory. We see this in all kinds of ways. If you have family meals, which is something I commend if you're married, and if you're living with friends, share a meal together. If you have family meals, you can see this. a simple thing. You have a nice meal. The food has been eaten. You're sitting back. You're relaxing. You're pretty satisfied. You look at the table. You have a general sense that things are pretty messy. You have a wispy vapor of an idea that maybe someone might clean it up, and I certainly hope it isn't me. And then your phone rings, and of course, you know, you've got to answer your phone, and so you step out to answer. It would be so rude to speak on the phone with the clatter of dishes going on nearby, and voila, you no longer have to clean up after supper. Isn't it great? Yes, yes, it's a poll. Yes, it's somebody trying to sell you lawn service, and you don't even own any grass, but you're going to talk. And if you own a house, an old house, we'd be like, this is a fairly old building, you know, there are projects around the house. And if you're a man, you put those projects off as long as possible until maybe two, three, four months after they're embarrassing and finally get out your tools and, and, you know, you fix the dreaded doorknob. And when you're done, if you're a typical man, you expect your wife to come around and, and, my hero, you have fixed the great doorknob. And swooning with love and admiration. We want to serve. We're willing to serve if we get recognition for it. That's also true. Most of us would like to have recognition without work. We'd like to not work at all if we could help ourselves. And the disciples are in this place. I mean, they are asking for glory. That's what's happening in the middle of this passage. And it's discouraging because Jesus has just told them how much he's going to suffer for them. 
He knows that if anyone is going to be doing any swooning, it's not going to be people swooning in admiration for him, but he's going to be swooning under the blows, the suffering, the deprivation. Ultimately, he's going to die giving his life as a ransom for many. That's a strong term. He's going to give his life up for other people. Now, the question of service has actually been coming up. If you have a Bible uh, in your hand, a physical Bible like this one, or a Bible in your hand via your cell phone or some other electronic device, I, I invite you, if you want to, just follow along with me and notice that in chapters 19 and 20, throughout these two chapters, the question of how much I give is coming up over and over again. So, for example, in the beginning of our passage, which is really chapter 19, the Pharisees ask how little they can give and still be viewed as religious people, how little they can give to their spouse. Can I divorce my wife for any and every reason, or does she have to do something really bad? That's their question. How little can I give? And then next comes a rich young man who asks the question, how much can I give? And when he gives it, he asks Jesus this question, when I give it, then God will owe me eternal life. What must I do so that I may inherit, so I can be sure I have eternal life? And I'll do something, he's saying, as long as I'm sure that I'll get something back. And Jesus says, well, if you want to do something, keep all the commandments. And he says, oh, well, of course I did that. And he says, oh, Jesus says, I didn't realize you were perfectly obedient all the time. I, if you want something more to do, I suppose I can think of one thing. You could sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he can't do that. Because, in fact, while he thinks he's obeyed all the Ten Commandments, he actually hasn't even kept the first one. He loves his money more than anything else, which Jesus knew. So the man goes away grieving, and Jesus says, you know, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because they're so convinced of their own abilities and strengths, they think they can get somewhere. And the disciples comment as the man goes away. They go, you know, Jesus, he wouldn't sell everything, but we did. We gave it all up. We gave up our homes, our occupations. We've been living itinerant, poverty-stricken lives these years with you. What are we going to get? He wanted to get eternal life. We've done it. What are we going to get? And Jesus says, you know, you will get something, but I have to warn you. If you obey me for what you will get out of it, you may find that you're last in the kingdom. We don't serve others because we think God's going to pay us back. That's just self-service in the end. We don't pray to God because we think God will give us whatever we want. That's just self-service in the end. We do it for God's sake. Bernard of Clairvaux, 800 years ago, wrote this. He said, if we demand a reward to obey God, then we love the reward rather than God. I quote, the soul that loves God seeks no other reward than the God whom it loves. Were the soul to demand any other thing, then it would certainly love that other thing and not God. We don't pay hungry men to eat, do we? We pay thirsty men to drink. No more should we demand a reward to serve God. So if you seek the reward too much, you're not really serving God. God does reward our acts of love and kindness. He does. But he doesn't hustle to reward them immediately every time. He's not our cosmic reward system, 
so that we feel we should benefit from every good thing that we do in some tangible way. Well, that's the background. And then in chapter 17, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. This is actually a theme he's given before. In fact, in the very first chapter of Matthew, we read that Jesus will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the word, the name Jesus basically means God saves. So Jesus' name is God saves. And then as he goes through life and he receives some hostility and opposition, he tells people that not only is he going to receive hostility and opposition, he's going to die. He says, I'm going to suffer many things at the hand of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of law, and then I'm going to be killed and the third day raised again. He says that in chapter 16. Chapter 17, he tells them again he's going to die on the cross. And here in chapter 20, he says it in more detail. You all love me, he says, good, but I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spat upon, crucified, and slain. And it all happens. Jesus knows that the religious leaders were envious of him. They didn't like his program at various points. They're hostile. They think he's a worker of iniquity. They plot against him. They arrest him. They flog him. They crucify him. And the Romans are all too willing to go along with it. So Jesus says he's going to die. And he did die. But he also says, I didn't simply die. I bore the punishment for your sins. I became a ransom, I'll explain it in a minute, a ransom for your sins, so that when I died, he said, it is finished, something was finished. That is to say, the process or the act of bringing humans back to God by faith, through God's grace, that was finished by Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus says he's going to die, but he doesn't just say he's going to die. He says he has to die. He knows the envy, the suspicion on the one hand, but he also knows it's God's purpose and plan. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, we read in the Gospel of Luke. That means he went to that city that kills the prophets. He knew what was awaiting him there. In the book of Acts, when Peter, just a few weeks later, proclaimed what Jesus had done, he said, this man was handed over to you by the set purpose and foreknowledge of God, and you, with the help of wicked men, nailed him to the cross. God's purpose, human choice, simultaneously, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. And that was all God's purpose and God's plan. That's what happened at Easter after the events of Good Friday. So Jesus is, has all this in his mind. He's, he's been teaching his disciples this for a while. In chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20, we read about it. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, he says it four times over. At his birth, it's foretold. And his disciples just can't seem to take it in. That's the second part of our passage. If you look at it, you see Jesus says, I'm going to die. And then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, come to say, she comes to say to Jesus, grant that my sons sit on your right and on your left in my kingdom. Folks, it may not seem this, this is like a, this is a tragic and yet simultaneously humorous moment. Jesus says, I'm going to die on the cross. And they say, can we please have glory? 
Now, it came from somewhere over in chapter 19 when the rich young ruler went away, when he wouldn't sell everything. Jesus said to his disciples when they asked, what will we get? He said, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but beware of seeking rewards too much. And so basically, they're saying something like this. You know, all these things about your death and about watching out for rewards, we don't care about that. We heard that one thing about sitting on thrones with you, and we want to pursue that element of your teaching. And furthermore, James and John were probably loosely, distantly related to Jesus. We're going to send our mother, who's like your aunt four times removed, and she'll press the question for us. She's not very pushy, is she? Jesus, you can put James on your right or your left when you reign. I don't really care. The choice is yours. As long as one of my sons is on your right and the other is on your left, everything will be fine. Well, it's easy to criticize, but I hope we also identify with this. I hope we also recognize that the same spirit is in us. We, too, want to ignore the word I know I do, want to ignore the words about suffering and death and opposition and hostility and the price that must be paid. I want to ignore that. And when somebody talks about glory, my mind tends to go. Your mind probably goes to that direction as well. The disciples didn't want to hear about Jesus dying. It was too painful to them. They loved him too much. They don't want to hear, the, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to know that their Savior is going to die on a cross in the utmost shame. Of course they tend to send their mind to other things. Jesus will reign. Let's talk about that, they say. Let's talk about the glory. Can I just say a quick word? As we question the disciples, I want to say two things. Number one, this is a question born of faith. They actually believe that Jesus is king and he's going to reign. They believe that. And they say, we believe we're going to reign with you. We don't want to know where. It's got a selfish twist to it. But they believe Christ is king, and they want to rule with Christ. I hope you believe Christ is king too. I hope you want to reign with Christ. I don't know what you do. Tonight we've seen some professional musicians. They're trying to reign. They're trying to do their music under the glory of Christ. And some of you are architects, and some of you are designers, and some of you are engineers, and some of you are politicians. And you write policy and you take care of finance. And I hope that as you go to work in the morning, in fact, when you go to bed at night, as your burdens of the day weigh on you, that you pray, Lord, help me to take these burdens to you. As you rise in the morning, Lord, help me serve you at work. Lord, you're my king. You're king of my work of transportation or medicine or education. You are the king, and I want to serve you, Lord, where I am. King Jesus, I am yours. Yes. The disciples say, which thrones? But they do believe Jesus will reign, and I hope you do too. We can question them. We must question them. We must question the hope for honor. And the hope for honor, like most hopes that go astray, are founded in something good. We hope for glory. The disciples hope for glory. You should hope for glory too. Jesus made mankind in his image. The Psalms say that God crowned us with glory and honor. And so it's absolutely right for us to desire glory, but a subordinate glory, a chastened glory, we might say. 
So I'm sitting in the front row with the Hobergs a little bit, and they have a daughter there, Isabel, that I met a few moments ago. I'm not going to do anything to you, I promise. <laughs> but you know, I have three daughters, and they used to sit with me in church all the time, and they love me, and they, two of them still live in my city, and see them all the time. I went for a long date with one of my daughters just yesterday. It's great. And they tell me they love me, and I tell them I love them. When they were seven, they used to make me cards on Father's Day that said, you are the best daddy in the whole world. Even when they were eight and nine, they wrote that. When they were 13, it was like, you're a pretty good dad. <laughs> Overall, probably. If you're getting cards from your kids that say you're the best mom, best dad in the whole world when they're 14, you need to send that to the Smithsonian. <laughs> now here's the thing. We want to be good moms and dads. We want the glory of being able to say, my children love me and I love them. But to say I'm the best dad in the world, that's excessive. That's foolishness. We should seek glory, modest glory. We should try to be the best engineer or transportation worker or teacher or physician or lawyer that we can be and find glory in that. The question is not, do I seek glory? The question is, do I seek glory under the king, my glory? Jesus, when the disciples say, we want to beat your right and left, verse 22, Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. To ask for great wealth is to ask for the anxiety that comes with wealth. To ask for a great position is to ask for all the responsibility, the weight of that position. To ask to be the center of attention is to ask to be the center of attention. And most people can't bear it. Our words and our deeds are not going to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Don't ask for foolish things. Jesus says, here's where glory comes from. It comes to me through my death on the cross. He says it to them this way, can you drink the cup that I drink? Now that sounds like a strange question to us. What does that even mean? Like Jesus had an illness, he didn't want them to get sick? No. It's a metaphor that has long lost its meaning. The word cup in the Bible signifies the judgment or the wrath of God. It comes from the idea that when you drink something, you drink it to the dregs in a day before filtration. That meant there'd be, like if you're drinking wine, you would have like little twigs and pieces of, you know, skin and parts of the stem and you wouldn't want to drink it to the bottom. And so to drink the cup means to drink the whole thing, even the bitter part, that's the metaphor. And it comes to me in the Bible in many places, to drink the cup means to drink a cup of suffering and even suffering for sin and God's punishment for sin. Jesus says, the way I find greatness, the way greatness comes to me is through my suffering. Are you willing to suffer with me? And they amazingly say, yep, we can. And Jesus, because he's so tender with us in our foolishness, lets it go. He says, why don't you all gather around and I'm going to tell you. The other 10 had been hearing what was going on at this time. We read it a moment ago, verse 24. They were indignant. They're probably indignant because they wanted to sit on Jesus' right and left, and James and John had beaten them to it. And so Jesus says, let's all gather around, and let's talk about greatness, the desire to be great, even, in fact, sometimes the desire to be just as good as somebody else can be grasping. And he brings them over, and he says, look, here's the way it goes. 
you know, I'm reading verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know that's the way it goes. You know that in this world, rulers rule and dominators dominate. And those who exercise authority wield it. That's the way it is. In that culture, greatness was measured by the number of servants you had, indeed, even the number of slaves you had, because it was a very slave-oriented society. If you had two slaves, that was something. You had five, that was something more. If you had 25, that was better still. Today, we don't have slaves. Most people don't even have servants. We call them administrative assistants today. We call them shoppers, people who shop for our clothes and our groceries and get online to get us the tickets because we can tell them to do so. We don't ask how many servants I have, we ask how many people report to me, how many people have to do what I tell them to do. That's the question we ask. And then Jesus says something that's very simple, very stark, the NIV translation gets the simplicity, the bluntness of it more than the ESV, which we usually read here. Jesus simply says, the rulers rule, the authorities exercise authority, four words, not so with you. Not so with you. Not so in the kingdom. Not so, Jesus says, with me. And then he gives a little bit of poetry. You don't recognize this poetry because uh, the form of poetry was different then than today, but it's called poetic parallelism. So, Glenn, now I've said it, and you can say it, because you've wanted to say it many times and wondered if you could say it, and now you're free, because I've said it for you. So it goes like this. He says, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first, that's beyond great, whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The higher you go, the lower you go. You want to be great, be a servant. You want to be first, you've got to be a slave. You want to be the son of man, the son of God, you're going to give your life. The higher, the lower. As a ransom for many. Now, the term ransom has three ideas buried in it. The first idea is that we're something like slaves. We're trapped. In ancient days, a ransom price was paid for someone ordinarily who was captured in war who had a high rank, like the king or the king's son or nobility, or a high person in the armed forces. They were captured, and they had to be purchased out of it. So when Jesus says, I give my life as a ransom, he is saying our lives count, our lives are important. He's also saying, you cannot extricate yourselves from this problem. And the problem is sin and rebellion and death. We can't rescue ourselves. God must. Jesus did. That's the biggest point. The second point is a price was paid. Not that Jesus gave literal money, but he gave himself. We say sometimes things like, you know, he paid a price, she paid a price, to go to medical school because, and then they'll tell why it was hard. He paid a price. Jesus paid a price. And then the third idea is then we're free. There's a new life. And we can live in that new life. 
Jesus gave his life for many. And then the the last thing I want to focus on is that Jesus says this, and I'm going to put my reading glasses on to signal to you that you can look at the text as well, okay? Because I've been reading and half memorizing and all that kind of thing. Notice that it says this. It says, whoever would be first must be your slave, even as the Son of Man, verse 28, did not come to be served, give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to look at that little word, that little phrase, even as, just as. Now, there are two things implied here. One is that Jesus' work is unique. He gave his life as a ransom for us. But the other is that Jesus' life is in some way a pattern for us. Jesus gave his life even as. Disciples, you need to serve even as I served. No human can serve exactly as Jesus served, but we can serve kind of like the way Jesus served. So when, back to our earlier point, the table's a mess, you know, we could actually clean up the table. And when there's a coat on the floor, we could not maybe say, hey, there's a coat on the floor, who left it there? But we could actually just pick it up and put it away. Or other little things. We had our children go off to children's church or education. A lot of times it's hard to recruit people for things like that. They don't want to miss the service. But of course, that's service too, isn't it? People hide behind, well, you know, children are not my gift. Yeah, yeah, but the kids are here and somebody needs to do it. In fact, a little before I got to know the Hobergs, I was invited by some people in uh, the seminary. When I was a seminary prof, first round, I was a prof for 12 years and a pastor for a church kind of like yours. And then back to the seminary last several years, and um, some students said to me, we're having a youth group, a junior high youth group retreat, and we think you should be the speaker. And I was studying this passage at that time. It was 21 years ago. I remember it clearly. And I said, no. Now, usually when a speaker doesn't want to do something, the speaker says, I'll check my schedule, pray about it, and get back to you. That means no. But I didn't even mess around. I just said no. Why not? Well, you know, I had a youth group once when I was 21 years old, 22 years old, and there were 15 in it, and 14 of them came to torment me. Five of them were actual, genuine, literal, juvenile delinquents. They were trying to get me to lose my mind, and I I really, uh, I just emerged from recovery a couple years ago, and so I'm not going to do it. And the leader of the group said, well, you know, we really think you're the right man because this is what we're speaking on, and we know you love this topic, and you know, you have two teenage, you know, preteens right now, and, and so you should do this, and you know what, your daughter, 12, can come for free, and I said, no, I don't care if she comes, if I'm not coming, what, how, that wouldn't move me, and then they said, well, you know, she could get, you could get to know other kids her age, know what that age group is like, and that, you know, I thought, okay, there's a point to that. And then they said the food is really good, which I knew was a condemnable lie. And then, then they said, we'll get you an isolated cabin connected to the main body of the retreat center only by monorail. You will have a code for the monorail. And after, you know, about a week, I said yes. And I was working on this passage. I was working on this passage. I didn't want to serve those junior high kids 
while I was preparing a talk on this passage, giving your life to serve other people. That's the human illness, isn't it? It's the human weakness. And we need Christ, we need him twice over. We need him to redeem us from that selfishness and we need him to show us a better way so that we can live even as Christ lived. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for giving us this part of your word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for living your life, giving your life as a ransom for many and teaching about it, teaching your disciples when they were so thick, so misinformed like us, Lord, thank you for teaching us and for redeeming us and pouring your love out on us all through our lives and above all through your death and your resurrection, which was no accident but the fulfillment of your long plan to redeem us, to bring us to yourself, that we might enjoy you day by day now and always. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.